I am excited to be jumping into God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be looking at um, one of the parables of Jesus. This is a very familiar parable. Um, it's the par- parable of the prodigal son. Charles Dickens actually called this the greatest short story ever written. And uh, I don't love the title, The Prodigal Son. Um, here's why, because I think as we navigate through this morning, what we're going to find is that the son is not really um, the emphasis of the story. It's not as much about the son as it is a story about the grace of the father. Really, that's the heart of this story. And through this parable, what Jesus is teaching and revealing is the heart of God toward us, toward, toward sinners, right? And he's kind of showing God's willingness and his joy to forgive and restore. And so while you may be familiar with this parable, I want to challenge you this morning. Don't just hear it as a, a nice little story, but come on and let's hear it as, as truth. I want you to hear the heart of Jesus toward us. I want you to hear um, the love of God toward us. And I want us to see together the resurrected life that he offers. And I want to tell you now on the front end that as we get to the end of this message, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you, if you never have, to receive the gift of that love. And so, man, I'm excited. So grab your Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And really what you're going to find is, um, if you read all of Luke 15, this entire chapter is an answer from Jesus toward an accusation from the Pharisees. Right? Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the super cool dudes who knew it all. And they were constantly seeking ways to trap Jesus. And in the first few verses, we see that they are doing this. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And I think it's, it's not really possible for us to overemphasize that first sentence, that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Again, the Pharisees were always looking for a way to disqualify Jesus, always trying to trick him and catch him and test him and hope that they could get him to say something out of bounds with God's word, say something that would seem like blasphemy, say something that would make him unclean, because if they could do that, it would disqualify him. And the reason that the Pharisees wanted to point out that Jesus welcomed sinners was because they despised sinners. They despised those that they considered uh, unclean, those that they had identified as as being less than, as not being uh, religiously clean. And listen, they considered themselves to be reflecting the, the attitude of God towards sinners. So their attitude of hatred and distance from those who they considered unclean, like sinners and tax collectors, they believed they were reflecting God's attitude toward them. So from their perspective, God distanced himself from sinners. He didn't draw near to them. God pushed them away. He didn't welcome them in. And so now you have Jesus who is including them and he's not just tolerating them, he's going after them. He's inviting them. Right, And so for the Pharisees, they see that from Christ and it gives them the, 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 all the ground they need to go, he can't be from God. He can't be from God. 
But what we see is that Jesus addresses this accusation through three parables. And in through these th three parables, he shows us God's true heart towards sinners. And that's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of um, the prodigal, the lost son, and his father. And I believe this chapter is given to show us um, God's concern for his desire for and, and, and even his preoccupation with the lost and his overflowing joy at our restoration. And you see it in the response of the shepherd when he lost his sheep, right? He left the 99, went after the one, and when he found the one, what did he do? Threw a party, right? The woman who lost her coin, and when she looked and searched for that coin, when she found it, what did she do? She threw a party. And you see it in the response of the father. When he found his lost son, what did he do? He threw a party. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 11. It says this, and he said, this is, this is Jesus speaking. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, there's something important we need to grab a hold of here, and it's, it's really easy to miss. You see, in Jewish law, if you had a family with two sons, the older son always got a double portion than the younger son. And for those of us who are older brothers, we say, yes, Lord. And so um, it's not a bad gig if you're the older brother. <laughs> so he would get the double portion, right? So if you had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds. The younger son would get one-third. But the thing about an inheritance is... You don't get anything until dad what? Dad's got to die before the inheritance is given. And what it's easy to miss is the offense from this younger son in this moment. Because essentially when he comes to his dad and asks for his inheritance, here's what he's saying. Dad, I really just wish you would give me what's coming to me and that you were dead. I would rather have what you have than to have relationship with you. That's essentially uh, what, what he's saying. He says, I want my inheritance now and I want you out of my life. No, it is hard to imagine something more painful than that for a father. And typically, if you had a son in Jewish culture that was this rebellious, that was this dishonoring, to his father, because then this is breaking one of the big ten, right? What was one of the big ten? Honor your father and your mother. And if you had a son that dishonored his father in this way, it was, it was severe, and three things would happen. The first thing that would happen is the father would take this son into the public square, and he would publicly slap him right in the face. That's not a joke. He would open his hand and hit him right in the face as a public declaration to try and humiliate him. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever been slapped dead. Has anybody just ever been open-handed, slapped right in the face? Oh, right now, already I start to get a little riled up. You know what I mean? <laughs> Something, it is, it's humiliating, right? And everything in you goes, I think I'll hurt somebody now. And, but that's what the first thing he would do is he'd drag this son into the square and slap him in the face. The second thing that would happen was he would be publicly scorned and put out. The entire community would turn their back on him and scorn him 
and put him out. The third thing and the most severe thing is they would actually have a funeral for this boy to signify to him and to everybody else that he was dead to his father. That's what would happen if he dishonored his father in this way. And listen, these people that were hearing Jesus tell this would have had that in mind. They would have, they would have had that in mind. And it's important that, that we understand this, that when he came and asked for this inheritance, this wasn't, this wasn't something that just brought a, a little bit of a strain on the relationship between the father and the son. It completely broke the relationship, right? It wasn't s- slightly damaging. It caused, um, it was irrevocably broken. That's what happened here. You know, I was probably in about, the eighth grade playing basketball, the first time I really rolled my ankle. Anybody ever done that? I'm talking about a good one where you roll it and that white hot fire shoots up your leg and you're confident you just want the Lord to take you out. You know what I mean? And you get the, you know, uh, Jackson, one of my uh, sons, rolled his ankle last week and it was all swollen and weird looking. And, you know, it's swollen, it's, it's painful, but it's okay. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, Carrie was... Took, took my daughter, and they were hiking out by um, Lake Catherine up around Hot Springs, and she fell, and she snapped the bone right above her ankle, right? Broke it. Now, if you've ever been around someone who's broken their leg like that, you don't get to bring up your little ankle sprain. You can't even talk about it anymore. You can't be like, you remember that time I rolled my ankle? She's like, remember that time my bone was poking through my skin? Remember that? And so <laughs> there was a difference the, the, the damage, the severity, the time of healing, all of that was much... Do you know when they say if it was broken, you'd know it? They're right. Yeah. right? It's a real thing. There was a difference between the sprain and, and, and that very damaging break. But listen, that's what sin does in our relationship to the Father. It doesn't just make it difficult. It breaks the fellowship. It breaks... The relationship. And that's the picture Jesus is painting in those few words. Now look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. This young man was running away from his father because he believed he was running toward his freedom. Right? He was running away from his father because he believed he was running toward... He was running toward his happiness as far as he was concerned, toward his satisfaction, toward the life he wanted. And listen, his freedom started out great. It started out great. Man, he had all the money. He had all the friends. He was getting everything money could buy. He went to this far country away from his father, away from his rules. Listen... Running away from God always starts by feeling free. It always starts that way, right? Doing what you want, living, living life on your terms. 
you know the Bible actually says there is pleasure in sin? It says that. Hebrews 11, verse 25. It says there's pleasure. I, I used to get so frustrated when I was young, and I would hear preachers say, listen, you shouldn't sin. There's no fun in sin. I was like, dog, then you ain't doing it right, man, because it's fun. <laughs> right? And so there is pleasure in sin, but Hebrews eleven twenty five says, though there is pleasure in sin, it is fleeting. It is passing. It's only for a season. And you find that to be true in the life of this son because we have seen now his circumstances change quickly and dramatically. The money dried up. The friends went away. He was left alone, begging, dejected. I want you to hear me. This is the great lie of sin. This is the great lie of living life on your terms. This is the great lie of I can do what I want, live the way I want, make the choices I want. This is the great lie right here. That somehow that is going to mean your satisfaction and your happiness and your contentment. Your fulfillment. And somehow, it always leaves you wanting. It's never enough. It's never enough. Just think about where this young man started and where he has ended up now. He came from a family where he had a position. He was loved. He was included. He was, this was a wealthy family. Wealthy enough that when he got just a third of, his, of the inheritance, he was able to go crazy for a while, right? He had a promising future. Now where is he? He's destitute and broken, forced to do the most humiliating job that no one would ever do just to survive. That is the trajectory of sin. It starts here. I'm going to do this on my own terms. I'm going to take what's mine. I'm going to live life the way I want. But it only moves one direction. And that's where you find this young man. I want to tell you, when this young man left his home, he had no idea that the choices he would make would leave him starving in the pig slot. He didn't see that coming. And I just wonder how many of you would acknowledge with me there are behaviors and choices and sins that you embraced and they took you a place you had no idea you would end up. They didn't work out the way you thought they would at all. You want to know why? You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Because sin always takes you farther than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it always costs you more than you want to pay. If we ever took a hold of that and took it with us everywhere we go, took that warning with us, this is not a small thing. This little sin where the enemy is whispering, ah, oh, this doesn't really matter. It's no big deal. Nobody, nobody even knows. It only affects you. Anybody believe that lie? It only affects you. As long as I know it doesn't matter, as long as no one knows it doesn't matter. As I lean into that, 
It is going to take me farther than I wanted to go. It is going to keep me longer than I wanted to stay. And it is going to cost me more than I ever imagined I would have had to pay. Because sin only moves one direction. That's what you see in this son's life. But bless the Lord, the pig slop wasn't the end of his story. Amen? Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, that is an important phrase. That is an incredibly important phrase. You know what that means? It means when he actually had his eyes opened to see his true condition. When he came to the end of his best, the best effort he had to fix his life was to feed someone else's pigs and just wish he could eat what they ate. That was his best effort. And when he came to the end of everything he could throw at his life to fix the problem and he saw his true spiritual condition, that's what it means. Here's what he said. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. You ready for one of the most beautiful scriptures in all the Bible? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, we kind of heard what, what happens to this when he dishonored, what, ha- what would ultimately happen to this young man when he dishonored his father in this way. In that same time, if, if this son were to come back, a son that had dishonored his parents like this were to come back, several things would happen. One, he would be publicly put in, in front of the community and rebuked publicly. They would call out what he did. They would acknowledge it. He would be scorned for that. Two, he would be required to get on his hands and knees before his father and kiss his father's feet. Complete humility. That's what he would be required to do. And three, he would have to become a servant of his father. And while he was a servant, his, his work, his attitudes, all of that stuff would be analyzed by his family and by the community, and once they thought it was good enough and he had done enough and his, he, he, was, he was humiliated enough, he may be able to earn back some position in the family. Listen, there was no grace. There was, there was no compassion. There was nothing except work. You had to earn it. You had to get that respect and that position back by hard work. And that is why the Pharisees were stunned when Jesus used the word compassion. The father had compassion on him. The word that they use there is the strongest possible word for compassion. It means to be moved in your guts. That's what it means. It's that deep stirring inside you. And you see the father now deeply moved toward his son with compassion. And notice, there was no hesitation from the father. You want to know what else there wasn't? There was no rebuke. There was no inquisition. There was no I told you so. There was only compassion. That 
is God's heart toward you. Our God is not an I told you so God. Our God is not one that sees us in the mess that we have made of our lives and rebukes and says, I told you so. It's just not his nature. It's not his character. Oh, he sees us in the mess. This father saw that son probably still caked in mud, pig slop, smelling to high heaven, crawling up that road. And he ran. And he went and got him. Notice what it says in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw. Now, how is it that his father could see his son from a long way off? How is that? Because his daddy was looking for him. His father had eyes down the road, <laughs> waiting, anticipating, hoping that his son would return. He was looking for him. That word ran, that his father ran to him, you know what that means in Greek? He hustled. He got after it. He sprinted. He went in a hurry. It's actually an athletic term that was used to apply to people who ran competitively. All right? Now listen, men in this time didn't run. It was undignified to run. They didn't run. You don't even see a lot of men running now, right? Unless it's, <laughs> unless it's like, when's the last time you saw a grown man who wasn't training for something or in a competition actually take off running? It's the most hilarious thing you'll ever see in your life. You know what I mean? I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, like watching my, the, a bull got after my dad out in the hay meadow and I saw my dad running to get to the truck and just jump into the back of the truck. And even as a kid, I remember thinking, that's not very athletic right there. <laughs> not a good look, dad. Hope you make it. <laughs> Hope it works out. <laughs> right? But it was considered undignified for a man to run. Here's why. Because if you were a man of stature, you wore nice robes. Not easy to run in. And it meant you would have to gather those robes above your knees, which by, for a man to show his knees was considered shameful. You would have to gather his robes above his knees, which is shameful, take off running, which was undignified. But he didn't care. Why? Because... There comes a time when, em when an emotion so dominates the heart that you forget everything else, right? I remember when I was little, we went to a uh, little furniture store there in Dangerfield, and I got lost in the store, which is hard to do, you know what I mean? The store was smaller than this room, and somehow I managed to get lost. And um, I had this bright idea that I was going to go out. I, was, I looked for my mom. I promise y'all, I did look for her. And I, I had this bright idea. I'm just going to go out and wait by the van, right? That sweet, sweet 1978 customized wood panel on the inside van, you know. And um, I go out and I stand by the van because in my mind, she's got to go home at some point. At some point, she's going to come get in this van and she's going to see me here and our reunion is going to be glorious. It's going to be that beautiful, beautiful moment. And we had a reunion wasn't like I thought. And because uh, somehow my mother saw me and she managed all at one time to be crying, laughing, kissing, hugging, and spanking all at the same time. 
all at the same time. She looked crazy, and she didn't care who saw her. She, she didn't care. This father was so overcome with joy, he didn't care how he looked. Listen, again, this is the heart of the father toward us. It is a heart of joy. It is a heart of celebration. It is a heart that runs to us. That's what we experience in the grace of God. And I wonder if you've experienced that grace. Have you? Have you experienced the grace of God? I want to give you two quick thoughts to help us understand God's grace. Man, I hope, I hope these are helpful to you. The first one is this. No one is so far gone that they're out of the reach of grace. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. No one is so far gone that they're out of the reach of grace. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger, on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. Remember, they had a funeral for this boy. And now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. I want everyone in this room to hear me this morning. God loves you and his grace is for you. And he offers that grace even if in this moment you're rejecting him. Even if in this moment you're right in the middle of I'm going to live this life on my own terms. Still he's giving his grace. Still it is for you. This son had done everything necessary to permanently separate himself from his father. Again, because that's what sin does. Isaiah 59 tells us. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sin has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But listen. This is for somebody this morning, and I hope you'll grab it. There is no separation sin can cause that his grace can't overcome. There is no separation that sin can cause that the grace of God cannot overcome. Because there is no one out of reach of God's grace. Because before you can repent, before you can desire him, before you can want to be with him, he sets his love on us through Christ Jesus on the cross. Again, this, this son wasn't greeted with frustration and rebuke. He was greeted with compassion and love. And I think for... For many of us in the room, we struggle to receive this kind of grace because we apply what we've experienced with our earthly father to our heavenly father. If that's you this morning, I want to tell you something. It is not within the nature and character of the Lord God who created you and desires to save you to just simply want to rebuke you. He's not mad at you. He's not put out with you. He's not through with you. He loves you right where you are. Right where you are. He sees you in the pig pen. He knows you've done everything you can to fix your life. He sees the mess. 
and his grace is for you. It's for you. The son said, Father, I've, I've sinned against you and, I, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's important that we deal with that little phrase. Here's why. Because that's true. He was not worthy of sonship. He had caused the separation. He had brought the harm. The sin was his. The circumstance was his fault. And he was not worthy of sonship. But listen, his relationship to his father, his acceptance by his father, his position with his father did not depend on his worthiness. It depended upon the grace of his father. Your relationship to God does not depend on your worthiness, but on His grace. And listen, maybe this is where you are this morning. Maybe you're struggling to believe God could actually see you, honestly see you, everything, that no, the things no one else sees, God see, that God could see you and that He would love you and receive you. Maybe you're just struggling to believe that's true. Um, maybe this morning you feel like you're, you're in a far-off country, separated from God. Maybe you are right in the middle of the darkness of some sin struggle, some secret sin that's absolutely destroying you and, and eating you up. And you look around and, and, and the path that you chose that had promised so much has only led to hurt and to brokenness. God sees you and he loves you right where you are. Listen, he has made a way to redeem you no matter where you are. Pastor, you don't know. It don't matter if I know. No matter where you are, he loves you and he has made a way to redeem you. He has made a way to bring you out of that far country, to bring you out of the mess that you've made and to bring you into relationship with him. It's why the cross matters. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption, right? We're, we're born again. We're redeemed. The life comes out of the pigsty into the presence of God. Redemption through what? Through his blood, Forgiveness of our trespasses according to my good works and my best effort and my worthiness and how hard I'm trying. If I ever preach that for real, y'all need to fire me quick. My redemption isn't on my work. My justification isn't on my behavior. My sanctification and being made new isn't centered on my worthiness. I am redeemed through his blood, sin forgiven according to the riches of his grace. Which the very next verse says, he has lavished upon us. That father came running back and he lavished grace on his son. He put the robe on him. He put the ring on his finger. He put shoes on his feet. This is the heart of God towards us. Listen, no matter where you are, the grace of God is for you through the blood of Jesus and the cross. 
This is why the cross and the resurrection are the most significant events in history, in the history of eternity. From creation until we are in heaven, the most significant event in all of eternity is the cross and the resurrection. Because, because of the cross and the resurrection, none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace. Which means this, there is no sin too dark. There is no country too far. There is no rebellion too great. There is no hurt too deep. There is no shame too significant. There is no recklessness too severe. Because of the grace and because of the cross and the resurrection, your history does not set your identity. Your past doesn't determine your future. There is no way in a room this size there are not people battling with past failure. It's not possible. And the enemy takes those past failures and he starts to set walls in your life and boundaries in your life that says because of this you'll never go past that. Nobody knows about that, but I, enemy, I, he, he brings that up. And our past failure, our history, begins to set our identity. And the reason it's so quiet in here right now is because more than a few of us have struggled with that and more than a few of us are struggling with it right now. Your past failures do not set who you are. The Lord God of the universe who knit you together gave his son to save you. When you have stepped into that grace, he gives you a new identity. He gives you a new name and glory. He gives you a new nature. He looks full on at those past failures and says, come on, I want you anyway. You're mine. Not only that, but I'm gonna use those past failures to redeem somebody else. I'm gonna turn that into a story that you get to tell and transform somebody else's life. If I ask you this morning, I hope you will hear me say that in the grace of God, in making Jesus the Lord of your life, there is nothing from your past that determines your future. This is why the cross is so significant. It's why the resurrection is so important. Because there is nothing you could do that would make God love you more. And nothing you have done or will ever do that can make him love you less. You get grace. J.D. Greer said this, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Meaning what? Meaning I get the position with the Father, but he paid the price. I get the presence of God, he took the punishment. I get the righteousness, he took the rejection. I get the love, he laid down his life. And it is why he came into the world. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? It was our restoration. 
That was the joy of Jesus. He endured the cross, and it is why he came into the world. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn you, but so that through him the world might be saved. No one is too far gone for the grace of God. It's the first thing. Here's the second thing. No one is so good that they're not in need of grace. This is going to poke around in our business for just a minute. Verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field. We got to deal with this older brother. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother's come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. I want you to notice for both of these boys, it was the father who came to them. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not his brother, now it's his son, right? This son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, the father says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Listen, this brother, this older brother right here on the surface, he looks the opposite of his younger brother. He looks the part, right? He's got it all together. He's respectable. He's reliable. He, he's faithful. He does everything his father asked him to do. And when Jesus spoke of this older brother, he had a very specific person in mind, and that was the religious person. That's who he was talking about, the religious person. This is the person who, who's lived a good life, respected by their neighbors, does a lot of good stuff, goes to church, and on the surface, they check all the boxes. But those good behaviors are nothing more than a, than a religious covering. They are camouflage laid over an unchanged heart. Both of these sons had missed the heart of the father. Both of them had missed what their father was offering to them. Now, there was some right behavior, Right? But he had never truly experienced God. Some of you in this morning have a religious covering and it looks amazing, but the heart hasn't been transformed. And the medicine that you lay over your unchanged heart is doing more good stuff. I come to church. I don't lie. I try to be honorable. I don't cheat my neighbors. I'm trying to do good stuff. Well, if my effort can't save me, I'm in just as, need, just as much need of grace as the one who lives in open rebellion. This older son, he was very near the house of the father, but he had missed the heart of the father. He was religious. Some of you are religious, but religion only covers the outside. It only cleans up a little bit on the outside. That's, that's all it does, right? It doesn't change the heart. But Jesus said, I, in Ezekiel, it was prophesied about Christ. He's come to give us a heart of flesh in place of this heart of stone. 
Isaiah 64 tells us that our religion, our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags because what God wants is to change a heart and that doesn't happen by trying to do better and trying to be better. It happens by being made new through the grace of God given through the person of Christ. That's how the heart is changed. Titus chapter three says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Nothing I can do to save me. Nothing you can do to save you. Nothing you could ever do would be enough to save you. But he has saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God loves you. His grace is for you even when you're too proud to know you even need it. I believe this morning that for many of you, hearing this is exactly why you're here today. It's not an accident that you're here. Maybe thinking, oh, I just got a random invitation from a friend and we just came. Well, we've been driving by, man. We see cars. We just started off. We'll give it a shot. You're not here because of something random. You are here because the grace of God is pursuing you and the Heavenly Father is chasing after your heart today. He desires relationship with you. So I'm just going to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. And I'm going to ask you right now, every single one of us, no matter where you are, to search your heart. ask you, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Search your heart. Have you believed that you are beyond the grace of God? Are you trying to camouflage by being religious and, and doing good things? Has Jesus changed your life? Have you been made new in Christ? you haven't, it's why you're here today. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It's as simple as praying and asking the Lord to come and save you and to make you new and to, to pull you away from being religious and to pull you into relationship with him. And you can do that simply by saying something like this. If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life and you know it, you can do that today by saying something like, Jesus, I want to receive your love. I want to receive this offer of salvation. I believe in the cross and the resurrection. I want to make you, you Lord. That means you are Lord and I am not. Forgive me. Cover me. Take control of my life and save me. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, that's the prayer today. Lord Jesus, save me. And I want you to pray it right now. God, I see the cross and I see the resurrection. And I receive this gift of life. Would you save me? Would you give me a new heart? I want everybody to keep their 
heads bowed and eyes closed, but if you prayed that prayer this morning, if you prayed that and you made Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm going to ask you to be pretty courageous right now. I want you to do two things. I want you to look up and I want you to stand up. Nobody's looking. It's just me. I want you to look up and I want you to stand up if you prayed that prayer this morning. Stay standing. If you made Jesus the Lord of your life, I'm proud of you. Who else made Jesus the Lord of your life today? Just look up and stand up with me. For the rest of us, I can only assume that means you have made Jesus the Lord of your life. So I want to ask you this. Have you taken that next step of obedience to be baptized? We talk about this a lot, but that's the next step of obedience is to publicly get into those waters and say, Jesus is the Lord of my life and be baptized. If you have not been baptized after your salvation, you need to do that and you can do that today. We're ready. We got everything. Clothes, towels, we got it. We're ready for you. So here in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if for some reason you didn't stand, but you know you prayed that prayer, I want you to come and take one of our leaders by the hand and say, you know, I made Jesus the Lord of my life today. If you need to get baptized, I want you to come and say, I need to, I need to be baptized. Jesus demanded it. He deserves it. We need to do it. And if you need to do that, and if you just need somebody to pray for you where you are, come and we'll pray. Let's stand. Father, thank you for a time to hear your word. I pray that for the next few minutes, Holy Spirit, you would move in this place. In Jesus' name.